Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Talking Pharmacy podcast. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine and joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News and Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. Right, Arthur and Neil will be doing the heavy lifting on the news this week as I've been putting the, the February issue of PM to press and coming to terms with Wales's disastrous start to the Six Nations. Um, less said about that, the better. It's good to have Rob back on the pod too after a couple of weeks away. So let's start straight away with Good Week, Bad Week. Rob, welcome back. Uh, good Week or Bad Week? Hello there, Richard. Um, I'm going to talk about what looks on the face of it to be another bad week for the Department of Health and Social Care, who've had a bit of a wrap wrap over the knuckles from the Public Accounts Committee for failing to conduct a proper analysis of the savings it hoped to make through the uh, Pharmacy Earlier Payment Scheme. Uh, They've also had another wrap for failing to consider the potential conflicts of interest arising from giving the scheme to Greensill Capital after original provider Citibank pulled out. Um, Now, it's a wrap over the knuckles for the Department of Health, but the founder, uh, founder Lex Greensill, actually created the scheme while he was a government advisor working out of the Cabinet Office um, when the programme was first created in 2012-13. So, aside from all that, the blame, putting the blame firmly, firmly on the heads of civil servants... I think it's a little bit, a little bit of a shame in a way. So it's a bad week for the Department of Health and Social Care, but they're picking up the flack for something they may have had very little choice in getting into in the first place. The um, the scheme itself was the first example to be launched um, of what was known in the trade as supply chain finance. Um, and this was, uh, quote, gra- a groundbreaking agreement with leading companies that will help tens of thousands of businesses secure in increased levels of affordable finance. And that was those words were um, the announcement by then Prime Minister David Cameron in October 2012. And so supply chain finance is really a child of the coalition government's austerity programme, and it was backed by some really big names at the time. That original announcement had a whole list of companies who were going to help their supply chain access credit and improve cash flow. And that that list of companies includes Asda, BP, BT, Capgemini, GSK, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer's, O2, Rolls-Royce, Serco, Tesco, Vodafone, the list goes on and on and on. So this was really embedded in the heart of heart of government. The idea, very simple, a bank would be notified by a large company that an invoice was a proof of payment. The bank would offer a 100% advance to the supplier for a sliver of an interest rate, knowing the invoice will be paid by the company in due course. And the whole house of cards was effectively underpinned by the credit ratings of these big businesses involved. Obviously, the pharmacy one was slightly different. Now, as we all know, the pharmacy payment scheme ended last year with the collapse of uh, Greensill Capital. Uh, the initial business case set out projects, has set out projected government savings of £100 million, but the Department of Health and Social Care told the Public Accounts Committee that the amount of money that was ultimately saved quotes would have been much lower than that. Obviously, they've no idea exactly how much it saved. Um, Interestingly, uh, the Department of Health and Social Care claims this was because uptake of the scheme by pharmacies was significantly lower than hoped, with 14% participating, not the 60 to 80% the government originally anticipated. 
Now, the odd thing is the Department of Health and Social Care would have known very early in 2013 that it was unlikely to get anywhere near the participation rate it expected. Uh, In January 2013, I was at the Company Chemists Association and I was getting emails from the person running the scheme at Citibank wanting meetings to find out why the big corporates were basically not interested in it. Um, This also means that Citibank knew early, very early on that they were unlikely to get the kind of return they were expecting either. So this week, the Department of Health and Social Care is carrying the can for delivering on a programme that came out of number 10. And whether they could have turned it down is a moot point, I think, given everything else that was going on at the time. Uh, Mr. Greensill himself was swanning around Whitehall with a Cabinet Office business card. And as I've just said, some very big players in UK PLC, as well as the CBI and the British Bankers Association, were very much in favour of this uh, this financial wizardry. Um, so it's not really a great surprise to me that, that, quote, there was considerable lack of curiosity in the department about the benefits of the early payment for pharmacies, which in the end did not deliver the promised savings. Um, The ultimate failure of the scheme, of course, resulted in the new arrangements in which pharmacies are reimbursed directly by the Department of Health and Social Care to a timetable which for years was considered unachievable. It's amazing you can find money like that when you need to, isn't it? It highlights once again that things that are unaffordable are ultimately often a political choice. And if we haven't learned that lesson in the pandemic, then we've learned none at all. So I think the Department of Health and Social Care might have been at best, terribly naive and at worst, negligent, as the point, as the Public Accounts Committee Chair Meg Hillier has said. No, I don't think so. Not specifically. Um, the promises made by Greensill and the easy acceptance of these by the Department of Health and Social Care may well have been reminiscent of the Emperor's new clothes, she said. But then I'd say with the Prime Minister and, and all those characters behind it, I'm not surprised they made it happen even when the early contacts with the sector told them from the get-go it was unlikely to be a rip-roaring success and that the business projections were probably wrong. Um, Ms Hillier ends by saying that the Department of Health and Social Care is now paying pharmacies more quickly itself and that begs the question why ever engage with supply chain finance in the first place, quite, to which I'd say the only answer is because it chose not to do the decent thing by pharmacy for more than 20 years and that includes times when fixing that whole late payment issue was very definitely on the cards. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, that quote you gave there um, from Meg Hillier, that was the one that summed it up to me, um, that if the Department of Health is now paying pharmacies more quickly, why did it ever need supply chain finance in the first place? And, and you know, you highlighted why, Rob. You, Rob, you met Greensill, didn't you, um, back in the day? Well, what, did, what was he like? He was just slightly taller than you, Richard. What, short? As I, re- as I remember him, yes, he was. I got summoned, uh, really. The only time I have, I've ever been in 10 Downing Street. And I got uh, I got invited to go and talk to him and, and the guy who was uh, responsible for the scheme at Citibank. And they were genuinely curious to find out why um, those people that I then represented at the CCA uh, weren't falling over themselves to to get hold of this lovely money. Um, and to which the the short answer, as I put on Twitter in, in the other day in response to a question I was asked, was that they didn't really need it. And they, they actually thought they could do better or they were doing better in the way that they managed cash flow, cash flow themselves. So it was a fairly short conversation. But um, 
I don't know whether other people were, were kind of asked to go in and, and talk about their objections to it. Um, as we know, you know, less than one in one in seven pharmacies uh, were co- ultimately covered by the scheme. So it got off to a got off to a pretty poor start. Yes. And I, I, I wonder, I don't know, but whether any of those one in seven pharmacies are kind of finding themselves in even more financial difficulties, you know, as a result of the situation now. I mean, I, I don't know that, but it would be a concern i'm sure it was, it was one of those things where once you get into it so once you once you take the money it seems to me once you take the money the first time even though in theory the whole thing was reversible and you could reverse out of it again in practice you can't because if you've had if you had an advance payment on your on your future bills then you almost need twice as much of that money in the month when you want to try and reverse it to get yourself back out of it and who's going to have that sort of money? I mean, we all know uh, the way that community pharmacy finances have been going generally. So it was, it was a, it was, it looked like a nice idea. Um, and I can imagine that at the time in 2012, when there was when there was less money around generally in businesses, that it that it, I can see why people thought it might be a might be a, a bit of a wheeze. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think pharmacies did end up on the hook for it because they there was no way of getting back out of it again. Yeah, absolutely. Arthur, you've followed this story as well, haven't you, um, in, in recent months? What did you think of it? Yeah, well, Rob sort of um, touched on the point that I was going to make, that um, the DHR obviously carrying the can for this in the in the Public Accounts Committee <coughs> report because they technically have ownership of the scheme, which obviously bombed quite badly last year. But I, I wonder sort of how much authorship they had in in in, in getting the, the the scheme off the ground when alex green still seems to have been as tight with with dave cameron as as he's reported as being how much pressure they came under it was interesting in the pac report as well that treasury had said they didn't see any uh purpose in in, in the scheme there was there was no real business case but it seemed to to happen anyway um so so yeah so yeah just curious sort of i guess what went on behind the scenes I'm, I'm not sure I'm buying that line completely from the Treasury. Um, at the time, I, I thought it was, uh, if people can think back 10 years, at the time, uh, there was a, the, 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 we were at the very end point of that huge inquest into the um, what happened with the banks in 2008. And I always thought, because I didn't know any better, that um, that with the Chancellor going around doing all kinds of uh, arm twisting not only of business and, and government departments but also I suspect of banks who very definitely didn't want to implement some of the things that were recommended as a result of you know that that general thing of let's try and make sure this thing ne- never happens again that um, that all sorts of arrangements were being made where banks were getting asked and asked in the nicest possible way to do something and this was city city banks um, contribution to that that they were going to you know, basically make 800 million quid or, or I think that was the, the figure, 800 million available in, in this sort of short-term finance uh, in in um, for which they get a, a small sliver. So uh, the idea that the Treasury ultimately um, didn't think this was a, a brilliant idea, I think is, I think is a little bit of, um, it's a little bit of captain hindsight for me that, because I don't think you have, Prime Ministerial announcements. Prime Minister is also the first Lord of the Treasury. Let's not forget, you don't have Prime Ministerial announcements of uh, huge financial initiatives involving the best, 
you know, the best part of big business UK without the Treasury at least of giving it the nod and thinking it might have been a wheeze that people might pull off. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree um, with uh, Robin uh, to an extent in the, in the sense that when you look at the Department of Health um, and you say they shouldn't carry the can, well, I, my 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 view is why not? I mean, uh, it, you know, Greensill was advising the government on supply chain finance over a five year five years was it 2012 to 2017 um and i think the department of health would have been you know fully engaged in those discussions and i, I was jeremy hunt was the health secretary and, and then i don't know if hancock was there but certainly jeremy hunt was the health health secretary during that period and and, and he would have been overseeing a lot of those uh, those talks and and i don't think for one minute that you could suggest that he's uh, he should be absolved of any um responsibility or blame so I, I think the department of health has to take some responsibility for this um you know that that whole period was uh i mean they, they bought what lex green still sold them and um and now we now we're seeing the result of that okay thanks Steve. that really interesting discussion there so that's uh lex green and the demise of the faster payment scheme um all right then um let's move on uh, i'll go next and i'm well quick bad week for me the health minister jillian keegan did you read this she uh, continued a, a visit after receiving a, a positive covid test goodness sake she has apologized but honestly after after two years of the pandemic you've got ministers um dropping a boo-boo like that um yeah I've got a good week, though. Uh, this is a nice good week, and it's for uh, Wicker Pharmacy in Sheffield, which celebrated its 70th anniversary, actually, last month. But amazingly, I'm sure we all know, it's been open for every single day for each of those 70 years, which is longer than the Queen's reign, which is remarkable. Very short history lesson. Um, the business was the brainchild of a small group of independent pharmacists back in 1951, and they sold that concept to their colleagues. And the 45 owners of pharmacies in Sheffield at the time invested in Associated Chemists, brackets, Wicker Limited. Now, of course, the chairman of Wicker is the great Martin Bennett, CBE, who tells us that since opening on January the 21st, 1952, Wicker has dispensed over 10 million prescriptions. And as ever, moving with the times in the last eight months, has delivered over 25,000 COVID vaccinations. Wicker, the business, it's a great story. It, has, it survived uh, fire floods uh, in 2007 when the staff had to be evacuated by boat. And it's even survived the construction of Sheffield's Inner Ring Road. Um, and the business and the pharmacy is quite rightly a Sheffield institution. Uh, employee owned, of course, very, very unusual in pharmacy. And I, I believe most of the shares are now owned by or on behalf of employees or ex-employees. Martin, one of our sector's leading lights, of course, and when we spoke to him, well, those fires still burn brightly, still fiercely critical of the government's funding cuts and has some interesting things to say about workforce problems too. Um, they've lost two pharmacists and two ACTs to primary care roles just in the last couple of months, which I guess goes to show that workforce shortages can't simply be put down to conditions, pay, opportunities, being looked after, etc. because Wicca would be right at the top of the tree when it comes to those sorts of things. But it does, I suppose, highlight how hard it is to offer attractive salaries to retain staff when funding cuts had bitten so deep in our sector. But let's not spoil things. This is a good news story. It's good news, good week 
for Martin and the team and one of our greatest pharmacies, Wicker Pharmacy, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Okay, Arthur, follow that. Good week or bad week? Uh, It might surprise some of our listeners because this is a good week involving a community pharmacy multiple and the sale of emergency hormonal contraception, which um, a lot of the focus um, when it comes to EHC tends to be a bit negative. But Boots uh, recently decided to sell its generic Levener Gestrel at a significantly reduced price. Um, it cut the price from fifteen ninety nine to ten. Um, the uh, the branded uh, EHC alternatives are 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 still, are still at higher prices, but this is a significant move by the multiple. It follows a lengthy campaign by w- women's health campaigners and MPs. It was the move was announced through through Boots MD Seb James right into the Labour MP Diana Johnson, uh, confirming that it was it was slashing the costs. Um, th- I think things sort of came to a head last November. Uh, I think it's November, whatever Black Friday is, because because Boots was running a Black Friday deal on on EHC, and campaigners said, "Well, you know, why then charging inflated prices the rest of the time?" Which it's always been been a sore point for for campaigners that you know with them um, uh, with a lot of uh, sexual health clinics or GP appointments harder to access. Um, a lot of the access to EHC by women is through uh, buying it in a pharmacy. Um, so this has been a been a, been a long running campaign. Uh, the company said its priority remains offering the highest standard of care to women, and it will continue to provide an expert pharmacy consultation as an integral part of the service to to, to women in, in making their choice. Um, and uh, and the and the move was welcomed by campaigners. And this the surcharge, the higher price was the, the higher price was described by a sexist church as a, was described as a sexist surcharge <laughs> bit of a tongue twister, a sexist surcharge that has now been scrapped um, so people were quite were quite happy with that although some are are, are calling for, for pharmacies to go further, obviously there are um, if, you, if you look at online pharmacies you can get it for, for even quite a bit cheaper than, than this £10 price point, um, I found one that lists an EHC product at three forty nine, and they're also the British Pregnant Pregnancy Advisory Service, which is which is cam- campaigned in this issue and other issues for for a long time as 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 press for pharmacies to go further still and to sell emergency contraception as a, G- a GSL, um so so women don't have to um to have that consultation. I don't know how how our readers would would feel about that. It it might seem a, a bit of a uh, a bit of a a leap from where we are now, but per- perhaps that's the that's the future. And and um, and I don't know, but but it's a, it's a, it's a, I thought it was a good week for Boots anyway. To um, I think they make the right call on this. Yeah, thank you, Arthur. Uh, Rob, did you want to come in on that? Well, I, I need to, to say that obviously this is a this is quite an interesting about face uh, and one that we you know might pick up in. In various print editions, has anybody used the Seb Scrap Sexist Surcharge headline yet? Is that still going spare? <laughs> you can have it, Rob. Thank you. Lots of this discuss here. Maybe we could we could save it for another pod. I think the whole area about access to contraception, emergency contraception, is things are moving very quickly. Been some significant developments in pharmacy, hasn't there? Over the the past year, we've got pilots for for um, oral contraceptives now. Um, provided free on the NHS, and we got the OTC switches, of course, and now 
uh, EHC coming down in price at Boots. Um, yeah, Arthur, I don't know. You say, is is it a step too far uh, at the moment for the, the um, emergency hormonal contraception to be out on the shelves uh, as a GSL product? Or is that the future? Maybe our readers and listeners could, could come in with their views on that because it's very much a, a live issue. They might also point out that we're four blokes talking about about this, so maybe we should get input from 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 someone else. Arthur, yeah, very very good point. Um, I think we should, um, and we we bear that in mind. I think for for future discussions. So Neil, let's come to you to finish. It's a related topic. Good week or bad week? Well, I've actually gone for a dual a dual bad week. I've gone for the GPHC as well, but I'll come to them in a minute. I've gone for Jacob Rees Mogg. Um, for appallingly really suggesting in the commons a few days ago that the morning after pill is an aborti, I hope I pronounced this right, abortifacient, abortifacient, uh, something that induces an abortion, basically, which we know is completely untrue. Um, the morning after pill does not induce abortions. I mean, what the hell is he, what the hell is he thinking? Um, it's just utterly unbelievable comment. And um, Labour, unsurprisingly, jumped all over his remarks. Uh, Dame Diana Johnson accused him of perpetuating a harmful clinical falsehood about the morning after pill, and I think his remarks are extremely irresponsible. Um, has he retracted his comments in the, in the last few days? I, don't, I have not seen anything anywhere to, to suggest he has. I don't think he has. I think he's probably too arrogant to do that, to be honest. Um, he's a devout Catholic, and in the past he has spoken out against uh, against abortion, but to say what he said is just utterly ridiculous. Um, it makes you. Th- it, it does make you wonder whether his comments were deliberate and calculated and if they were what, what's he tr- what was he trying to achieve through what he what he said he's not a stupid person so it just beggars belief the, the whole thing um and i'm sure we'll, the other guys the other chaps will have, have a view on that um my other bad week goes to the gphc um for failing to meet all the standards around its fitness to practice for the third consecutive year and the professional standards authority in its latest performance report um it did say that the gphc had satisfied all the criteria and other areas general standards guidance and standards education training registration but they only met two of the five standards and fits to practice um and uh, you know okay we need to be balanced and fair and, uh, and and say as the as the psa themselves did did point out the, the GPHC was trying to address concerns over its fits to practice processes. It wasn't just sitting back and doing nothing. Um, and it did concede that the pandemic had had an impact on on the GPHC's progress, and, you know, and, and as it inevitably would have done. But nevertheless, you know, it's uh, it, it is three years in a row. It's not good. Um, and with that, you know, it feels a bit. I feel a bit bad putting them in a bad week because, it, it, as I said, there are extenuating circumstances. But I don't feel too bad putting them in bad week. I caught up with the outgoing chair of the GPHC, Nigel Clark, a few weeks ago. You can read the full interview in the February issue of P3 Pharmacy. Uh, one of the things Nigel uh, pointed out while accepting that, you know, there was still some way to go in improving some of these processes, as Neil rightly points out, is that the GPHC has been waiting for a while now for some uh, some updates to its establishing legislation, which basically allows allows it to do certain things and prevents it from doing other things. So some of this issue that the PSA is 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 recognising and sort of saying we know it's improving but it isn't quite there yet, I think maybe also be a reflection of the fact that there is a there is a bit of a delay on some uh, important changes to the way that the GPHC can act because of how its legislation works. Interesting, one of the points that Nigel did make was that um, while the GPHC has a particular problem, um, that problem is even greater for the General Medical Council and the Nursing and Midwifery Council, whose legislation is even older 
and who are even more overdue some updates to their own rules and uh, the way that they deal with uh, deal with cases in, in medicine and, and in nursing. So I think there's a bit of balance there, which just might be helpful. And, well, I think we're nearly out of time. We'd better wrap things up there. So my thanks to, to Rob, Neil and Arthur. All the Talking Pharmacy podcasts are available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and from all your usual podcast providers. Just search for Talking Pharmacy. Next week, the podcast hits the road for a West Country special. But until then, from all of us, thanks very much for listening.